You know that's the sound of another sale on your online Shopify store. But did you know Shopify powers selling in person too? That's right. Shopify is the sound of selling everywhere. Online, in-store, on social media, and beyond. Track every sale across your business in one place and know exactly what's in stock. Connect with customers inline and online. Do retail right with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash true crime. I've been playing this game on my phone recently. It's called June's Journey. And it's pretty beautiful, actually. There's a story to it. It's about this woman named June Parker, whose sister and brother-in-law were mysteriously killed. This is in the 1920s. And June goes to their estate to try to figure out what happened. And the way you play it, it's, it's a hidden object mystery game. So you're looking at these scenes and you have to try to figure out where things are and you tap on them and those become clues. So you are actually kind of like the detective here. You're investigating these beautifully detailed scenes of the 1920s to uncover the mystery of what happened. I'm pretty deep into it already and the question is, can you crack the case? Discover your inner detective when you download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 147 of the True Crime All the Time Unsolved podcast. I'm Mike Ferguson, and with me, as always, is my partner in true crime, Mike Gibson. Gibby, how are you? I'm good, man. I'm doing really good. That is good to hear. I'm glad you like that. I love it when you're doing really good. Yeah. One time, I'd like to hear you say you're doing great. What does it take to get to Gibby great? And it's going to take a while to get to great. Your scale is a little tougher than some. Yeah. Maybe. Yeah. But I'm happy that you're doing good. Yeah. I had a great week. That's good. And there's still some days to go in it, but yeah, I always like it as the week goes on and nothing has happened to put me in one of those funks. Because you know my funks. I can uh, get in a can. funk. I know. Believe me. I know. When things go bad. Yeah. But the, the good thing is you're mobile. You know, you're not... Uh, Walking around all stiff and stuff. Yeah, I've been playing some basketball on, on these 46-year-old knees and legs, man. It's been tough. Yeah. Well, been know, hurting me. It's not easy getting older. Well, it's not easy getting older, but it's really hard getting older when you have not taken care of your body yeah. in a number of years. And then all of a sudden, you decide to go play basketball with 18, 19-year-old kids who are running around like crazy, and you're trying to keep up with them. Yeah, I get it. I don't feel super bad for you, though. No, you shouldn't. I did it to myself. <laughs> you did. And you, you have every means, as <laughs> far as equipment-wise. I have like so a you, whole gym's worth of equipment yes. in my basement. Yeah. I do. My wife uses it every day. Yeah. I do not. It looks good, though. It does look great. And my wife looks great because she takes advantage she of does. it. She does, yeah. <laughs> and that's why when people see us, they're like, you're married to him? Yeah. What, what is going on? Nah, you know, they, they know why. <laughs> that sounds a little funny. 
All right, buddy. We had some new Patreon supporters. We had Brandy McDougal. Hey, Brandy. Melissa E. Hey, Melissa. Ashley Shearer. Hey, Ashley. Carrie Flint. What's going on, Carrie? Brianna Bias. Hey, Brianna. Molly Ward. What's up, Molly? Suzanne Schmidt. Hey, Schmidt. Lauren Jewell. She's a diamond in a rough. Ruth Harjo. Hey, Ruth. Jaden Beller. What's up, Jaden? Maddie C. Hey, thanks, Maddie. Olivia English. What's going on, Olivia? Charlotte Roberts. Hey, Charlotte. Corey LaRosa. Ooh, LaRosa's. Carol Becker. What's going on, Carol? Corey McKinnon. Hey, Corey. Kayla. Just Kayla? Yep. Okay. Bree H. What's going on, Bree? Jana Ewing. Like uh, the basketball player Ewing? Or the show Dallas, the Ooh, Ewings. The oil legacy. Yeah. Yeah. Vicky Wright. What's going on, Vicky? Dustin Moore. Hey, Dustin. Isn't he a country singer? Was that like the fake country name of the guy that George Strait played in that uh, movie? No. No? But that is a good movie. Pure Country. I like Pure that Country. Name. Well, what, his name Dusty or something in that? Yeah, Dusty. Yeah. Julie Chandler. Hey, Julie. That was a good conversation. Lauren Fitzpatrick. Hey, Lauren. Donna Perry. What's going on, Donna? Ringo McBiscuits. Hey, don't you be touching my biscuits. And last but not least, Angela Preciato. Preciato. Mr. No, Rabato. It's a D, no T. Oh, well, I went with the way I wanted to. All right, let's go into the vault. This week, we selected Arian Badinger. What's up, Arian? So appreciate the new support, the long-term support. Arian's been with us a long time, and we definitely appreciate we it. We do. PayPal support as well. We had Tamara Moore. Hey, Tamara. Donna Weaver. Hey, thanks, Donna. Michael Reddick. What's up, Michael? And Daisy Davies. Daisy, really? Mm -hmm. I've been talking to her. I know. Yeah. Social media. So that is awesome. We love it. We appreciate it. Gibbs, right now we have a brand new episode out on True Crime All Time. Yeah. We're heading to Denmark. We are. To talk about one of their famous killers, Peter London. This is a strange case. Does take place in Denmark, but there's a component of it that takes place in North Carolina. It does. So we're calling it our Scandinavian case, but it has some ties to the U.S. as well. It's a fascinating case and a strange story. And my Danish accent did not come off very well. It didn't, because that sounded like Scottish, like all of yours morph into. Morph into, yeah. Either that or Australian. We're going to take some classes on accents. All right, buddy, are you ready to get into this episode of True Crime All Time Unsolved? Let's do it. We are talking about the disappearance of Zachary Ramsey from Great Falls, Montana in 1996. Yeah. So let's start talking a little bit about Zachary. He was born on December 18th, 1985 in Great Falls, Montana to Rachel Howard, a college student, and Franz Ramsey who was a staff sergeant in the Air Force. His parents divorced when he was only two years old, and Zachary remained with his mother, Rachel. His dad moved to Colorado Springs, Colorado. Zachary was the oldest of three. He went on to have a younger half-sister, Simone, who was five at the time of his disappearance, and a half-brother, Isaac, who was two. According to Zachary's elementary principal, he was a good-looking kid. He was perky. He was talented. He had a great smile, and he had a spark in his eye. Just like you. 
all of those things, just like me. I mean, basically, Gibbs, what this woman said was that Zachary showed a lot of potential from a very early age. It could be seen in his drawing and painting abilities. Yeah, very artistic. He was friendly, apparently got along with everyone, but he had his struggles as well. It was about 30 days before Zachary went missing that he ran away from home. Now, I say he ran away from home, but it was for about an hour. Yeah. So this was a a mad, I'm leaving type of thing is what it sounds like to me. He was only gone for an hour because he missed his mom. And on top of that, he was afraid of being alone in the dark. So he went into the local pizza joint called Howard's Pizza. Yeah. And called his mom and said, hey. This is where I'm at. Please come get me. And what did the mom do? She went and got him. Sure. I yeah. mean, what what else is a mom going to do? I'm sure she was frantic during that Absolutely. hour and was very relieved to find her son. You know how kids are. I mean, they, I know my kids a few times said, I'm going to run away. You're like, okay. <laughs> I think most parents out there would be hard pressed not to remember a time when their kid said something similar. Right. My kids have said it. I'm mad at you. I just want to get out of here. I'm going to leave. I'm going to live with grandma. I'm going to, yeah. But luckily most of those are just blowing off steam type of things. And you know, nothing ever really happens at the time of his disappearance. Zachary was 10 years old. He was four foot tall, weighed a hundred pounds. Zachary was biracial. His mother was Caucasian and his father was African-American. He had brown hair and brown eyes. His parents have said that Zachary had the cutest dimples. Kind of like my dimples? Yeah. Yeah. You're very dimply. Very dimply. But he also had a tiny scar between his eyebrows. I got one on my eyebrow. All right. Well, we're not talking about you. No, I just wanted to. We're talking about Zachary who disappeared. Let you know. And and I do think, you know, kidding aside. Sure. These are very important details. So critical. When you're talking about a disappearance case, you know, it may not seem like much, but dimples and a scar between the eyebrows, that could be something. Sure. If you're sitting in a restaurant, you see maybe someone that fits that description and they have the dimples, they you see a scar. You know, it's it's gonna it's gonna lead to something potentially. It could. Now, this was what almost twenty four years ago. Yeah. So Zachary would be almost thirty four today. Sure. But the fact is, he'd probably still have those dimples, and he would definitely still have that scar between his eyebrows. Oh yeah. So there's yeah. somebody out there listening that could think to themselves, "Man, I know somebody that that has that scar." Now they're. Granted, there are a lot of people that might have a scar between their eyebrows. I guess my point gives is, to me, in cases like this, there's no detail too small to talk about because it could be that detail that somebody latches onto. Especially in the early stages, you know, a lot of people are looking. Yes, definitely. The day of his disappearance, Zachary was wearing light blue jeans a blue football jersey with his first name printed on the back in big gold letters. He had on black high-top 
sneakers and a blue denim jacket with green sleeves. Again, all very important. On February 6, 1996, he said goodbye to his mother as he walked out of their apartment to head off to school around 7.30 a.m. He turned off 4th Street to the lower north side alley to get to his school, Whittier Elementary School. There were a few people who saw Zachary make the turn into the alley. There were some people that saw him in the alley that morning, but essentially this was the last time he was seen. Yeah. I mean, we've all walked to school. He's in a city that from his apartment building to the school, he's walking basically about three blocks, city blocks, taking the alley the whole way. Yeah. I mean, it's a distance, I think, for a 10-year-old. It is. It is. But- It's also Great Falls, Montana. Sure. In 1996. And I think you have to weigh place and time versus, you know, where I grew up, little small town, people didn't really have any issues with letting their kids walk to school or even walk to the local small grocery store. It really just wasn't much of a thing. But in other areas of the country, it might have been. Yeah. A a bigger deal. Sure. But you also know in that area, he wasn't the only kid walking to school. I'm imagining all the kids probably walked to school. This was the norm. Yeah, obviously not if there were a bunch of other people that saw him, you know, on his walk that morning. The question is, why did no one see him after the sighting in the alley? Yeah. That's the question. Because it was around 10 a.m. after the elementary school took attendance and made their rounds that they noticed Zachary was not in school. They also noticed his mom did not call him in sick. So the school's principal calls his mom to report him missing. It's a call nobody wants. Yeah, it's a call that nobody wants. It also gives some insight into how things worked back then in this area. I know my daughter's school, I get an automated call, and it says, Hey, your daughter is showing up as absent. And that's when I say, yep, forgot to call her in. I make the call to the school because she's sick. But it's really early on. They do it very early because I think it's much more automated than it would have been in 1996 where, you know, they've got to compile all the records. It's got to be sent into the office. And then who's making the call? Sure. The principal. Yeah. I mean, class started at 815. They make the call to 10. That's a sizable gap. It is. It just, it just gives you a little insight into maybe how things have changed in the last 20, 25 years. So Zachary's mother gets this call and she immediately goes out to see if she can find him taking the route that he would have walked to school, but she doesn't find him. So at 1120 AM, She calls the police to report him missing. Police come out and they get Zachary's information, including what he was last known to be wearing. And she's going to show them the same path that he would walk every day to school so they can check it out on their own as well. And you mentioned it, Gibbs. This was a walk that took him through several city blocks and through an alley At the time of Zachary's disappearance, Great Falls was a city of 60,000. So it's not a super small town. No. It's a good-sized town. 
It's also not a huge town. Probably pretty similar to where I live. I would think so. I would think. Yeah, similar. Police set up a search team immediately. Because I think very quickly, Gibbs, unlike in some of the cases that you and I talk about, they didn't waste any time. And they also didn't think that this was a runaway situation. I got the feeling that very quickly, they felt like something was not right here. Right. And we need to sound the alarm bells and get things moving. That hasn't always been the case in some of the stories that we cover. No, no. Maybe it was his age being just 10 years old. And that could have had a lot to do with it. The police searched the banks of the Missouri River. They looked in some of the huge snow banks found at nearby Gibson Park. These were huge snow banks. You know, this is Montana. They get a lot of snow. They had these huge snow banks where the kids would tunnel out. And play in there. Right, like a, almost like a fort. Yeah. Probably yeah. Making, making forts and playing. So some of the thoughts were maybe he decided to, instead of going to school, go play with some other kids or something and got in one of these snowbanks. Maybe it collapsed on him. Or, or Who knows? Well. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I think at that point, every conceivable scenario has to be running through your mind. The police searched Zachary's entire neighborhood. They asked residents to check their homes, their sheds, their dog houses. They even asked them to look into like old porch refrigerators. Yeah, you know, sometimes, and we've seen this before in some cases where they were worried that the kids would get inside them, close the old ones. And get locked in. Get locked in. They also asked residents to check any campers that they might have had on their properties. On top of that, the police called in search dogs so they had the bloodhounds smell zachary's toothbrush to get his scent from that morning when he brushed his teeth they also had some other items probably clothing that they had the dog smell these dogs searched in some of the same areas that police did eventually volunteers joined in handing out flyers with zachary's picture and description on them They also had the description of the clothes that he was wearing that day. They posted these flyers everywhere they could. Storefront windows, parked cars. The flyers were donated by a company called Advanced Litho. So they're doing everything that they need to be doing, right? I mean, they're searching. They've got the dogs out there. They've got the flyers or posters, whatever you want to call them, plastered everywhere. I mean, the awareness is there. Gibbs, I don't know what else they could have done. They jumped on it early, right? That's a beef that you and I have in some of these cases. We don't have it here. The police started immediately. Volunteers came in. Companies came in to offer their support. The community held prayer vigils. They planted a prayer tree. And a lot of people in the community would come by this tree and place items for Zachary. You see that sometimes, you know, where they place candles or flowers or teddy bears, yeah. things like that. I mean, you see it a lot of times in these types of cases. You also see it when famous people die. I remember when Steve Jobs died. Yeah. You had a lot of those type of, like, almost like mini memorials. Right. People were leaving, like, old iPods. Yeah. And things that he had created. Now, obviously, that's a much different situation than what we're talking about here. But So they're doing all this work. 
and some tips and leads started to come in. One tip was from a psychic who claimed Zachary had accidentally fallen under a condemned home before it was demolished and filled in. Okay. That would be horrible. Sure. Police checked it out. They said there was no validity to the claim, but they got a lot of bizarre claims, a lot of bizarre tips, Yeah, which I, which I think would probably happen in a lot of cases. Sure. So they're going to have to decide which ones they want to look into and which ones they're not going to, right? They're going to weigh their decision based on the information given. Yeah. Which I think is only natural. There's only so much manpower. You have to, you'd love to check into everything, but if you don't have the manpower, you, you have to prioritize. Police took a look at Zachary's mom, Rachel, and I think that's normal. Rachel was the last person in the family to see Zachary that morning, and they learned that she had thrown away a 10-foot section of carpet just a few days before his disappearance. Which is Kind of interesting because you want to, why would you throw away a section of carpet? Well, I would think it is definitely something that the police would want to check out. Sure. And they did. And eventually they found the carpet roll in a trash bin, not in the apartment complex where they lived, but in a complex down the street. But they didn't find anything unusual about it. There was nothing on it. There was no stains. There was no signs of anything that would point to foul play right. or you know anything like that, which I wouldn't expect there to be because it happened days before his disappearance. Exactly. Yeah. But the police did continue to question Rachel about Zachary's disappearance. One thing that they kept asking her about was the timing. Sure. Between her getting the call from the school at 10 at 10 o'clock and her calling the police at 1120. Well, that walk from her apartment down to the school is about a 20 minute walk. So I think they just wanted to know there's a little bit of time there, right? If you walk down, walk back, that's 40 minutes. And it took her 80 minutes before she called. Yeah. So they want to try to pin down some of those details. Yeah. Now, I could make the argument that it might normally be a 20-minute walk, but I'm looking for my son. Yeah. So I'm stopping along the way. You're zigzagging I'm, here yes, and there. Yeah. I'm not making a straight beeline right. there like I normally would. I'm checking every corner and nook and cranny. And, and I think that probably was her argument. I don't know how long it took me. I just know... I couldn't find him when I came back here. I called you guys. Well, the one thing she definitely kept hammering home to police was that, hey, I didn't have anything to do with Zachary's disappearance. And on top of that, you're wasting valuable time. Yeah. Messing around with me that could be spent out there looking for my son. I'm sure I would make that same kind of statement. Sure. Hey, I know you have to question me. Yeah. I know it's. It's part of what you have to do, but let's do it and get it over with because your man hours or however many people are in my apartment right now could be better spent looking for Zach. Exactly. Three months went by, no sign of Zachary. And this is when his classmates decided to decorate part of the school for him. And they added a plaque that read 
Zach lost but not forgotten. Still hangs there today. Three months is a long time. You sure it is. It's not in the normal course of your life. Three months goes by very quickly. As it relates to a missing child, three months is, is a long time. It's a lifetime, man, for that mom and that dad. Gibbs, the community was in shock over Zachary's disappearance. I mean, I'm sure they were sorry for his mother. I'm sure they were worried about him, but they were also worried about their own children because they don't know what happened to Zachary. Is there someone out there who is abducting young children? That would put the fear into every parent of a young child in that entire community. I'm sure over that time period, more and more parents were walking their kids to school. Or dropping them off or, yeah. So over these months, the police were still hunting down leads, interviewing witnesses, and trying to continue to refine the timeline. Yeah. And, you know, we mentioned it. This is not a small town. It's not a huge town. What I did find interesting about the Great Falls the Police Department, Gibbs, is that prior to Zachary going missing, they had only had one case of a missing child. And that says a lot about the community. Yeah, I'm sure it was a great place to raise kids. It was probably pretty safe. Yeah. It wasn't a place where you would think your kids would be in danger. The previous case happened on August 2nd, 1988. Dolana Clark was a nine-year-old girl who was riding her 10-speed bike on that summer day. She went missing. But the police thought that she ran away. Yeah. So here we get into maybe the reason why they acted so quickly in Zachary's case, because they later found Dolana's skull with a bullet hole in it in October 1989. This was found up in the Little Belt Mountains. Just a little bit bit more than a year later. Yeah, after she went missing. It was about a year. Police pretty quickly suspected a family friend, a man named Wilfred Morrissey, and they got him to take a lie detector test. But I guess in the middle of taking the test, he threw up. That's one way to get out of it. Yeah, I don't think the polygraph examiner is going to want to continue. No. Takes forever to clean that machine out now. But eventually they must have, because they got this guy to take a second test, which police said he failed. And from there on, he wasn't about to take any more tests. No, he was done. So police developed a theory. And their theory was that Dolana rode her bike to visit Wilford because her parents were out drinking that night. So she went to visit a family friend, you know, instead of being home alone. Which is a little scary to me, I have to be honest with you. This was a nine-year-old girl. Right. Left alone while the parents went out drinking, and she jumps on her bike to go somewhere. Yeah. It's not what I would want for my child. Now, I wouldn't put my child in that position, but I I don't want to be preachy about it either. You know what I mean? But it's also a different time. Yeah, you're right. I mean, it's the 1980s in a small town. I don't know. A little safe. Well, I'm getting ready to say a little safer than today, but obviously not. Right. Right. So. Yeah. And I have to be careful about, you know, really bad mouthing parents' actions too much. 
I just look at it and say, I know it's not something that I would do. Right. That's that's but not who you are. I can say that. Right. A detective came and knocked on the door, and I said, is it Renee? And he just gave me that solemn look. It was the worst day ever. The Proof Podcast is back with a new case and a new season. 23 years ago, 18-year-old Renee Ramos went missing. Her body was later found in an empty Home Depot building on the edge of town. I don't think that they arrested the right people. It's about time somebody's trying to do something. She had a black eye about two weeks before she was murdered. They are involved. They definitely had her body and her backpack. You know people are going to judge you, right? Of course. They're judging me now. They've been judging me down there my whole life. You can listen now to season two of Proof, wherever you get your podcasts. And follow along with us as we reinvestigate the murder at the warehouse. I have to ask, did you kill Renee? This is your invitation to the intersection of versatility and design. The kind of experience you can only find in a Lexus SUV. A feeling this empowering is invite only. Fortunately, you're invited. Experience the versatility of the complete line of Lexus SUVs and some of the best offers of the year on select models at the Invitation to Lexus sales event, now through April 1st. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. I don't know what their situation was, so it's hard for me to really, you know, get into it too much. Eventually, Dolana's parents went to Wilfred's house, and it's a little unclear as to why they did. I mean, Gibbs, I think we can speculate. Maybe this is something that Dolana did. On the regular? On the regular. Maybe she went to go visit this family friend. They were looking for their daughter, and they asked Wilfred if she was there. He said no. But he offered to help put together a search party, but strangely refused to use his cars for the search party. Which is definitely strange. Yeah. I'll help, but we can't use my cars. Right. What the police believe is that Dolana and her bike were in the trunk of Wilfred's 1963 Chevy Impala. Police also said that on August 31st, 1988, So this is what, not quite a month after she went missing, Wilfred attended a meeting of his neighborhood homeowners association and apparently told them that he couldn't be part of the group any longer because something big had happened in his life and he needed to move. That should be some type of uh, alarm. I think it would be knowing that this little girl is missing. You're a family friend. Most likely she has been known in the past to come over to your house right. from time to time. Days later, police searched this guy's home, but apparently someone tipped him off that they were coming. So they didn't find anything. And it's at this point that police believe Wilfred drove her body up into the mountains. And then this case went cold until 2002 When police got a new tip, this tip led them to go back out to Wilfred's property and they found a 22 caliber rifle broken into several pieces and buried in his yard. Police believe that this was the weapon used to murder Dolana. So they want to talk to Wilfred again. 
Yeah. But it makes me wonder if you go through the efforts to take apart a rifle, break it up, whatever you did, why would you bury that in your own backyard instead of disposing it anywhere else? Yeah. I think this one to me is a little different than some of the ones we questioned because it would have never been found. Yeah. Had it not been for the tip. tip. So now I'm wondering who'd this guy tell yeah. that knew about the fact that he had buried this 22 right. rifle. But I agree with you, you know, throw it in the Missouri river. Yeah. Nobody's ever going to find it. At least don't bury it in your own yard that puts a potential murder weapon in your own. Yeah. It property. is. It is very strange. Yeah. So they interview Wilfred several times they have this new evidence that they've collected. They arrest him, and he's ultimately convicted. Gives the jury only needed about four hours. And Wilfred Morrissey was ultimately sentenced to life. This is an interesting little side case yeah. that I think has to be told within the story of Zachary going missing. But now we have to get back to Zachary's investigation. The police interviewed witnesses. They did develop a better timeline, but they also hit upon a new person of interest. Yeah. So this is what they now knew. Zachary left his apartment at 730 that Tuesday morning, according to his mother. A woman named Margarita Richardson said that she recalled seeing Zachary walking down the alley just after 7.30. And this would make sense. She just lived like three doors down. So police learn about this person of interest when another witness, a man by the name of Michael McIntyre, comes forward to say that around 7.15 that morning, he saw a known child sex offender wearing a blue police jacket in the same alley that Zachary would just 15 minutes later be walking down. Three members of the Henry family came forward to say that they saw Zachary cross fifth street through the alley, but they also saw an off white four door car almost hit him as he crossed. Now, later on, police are going to find out that this person of interest drove an off-white four-door car. As police go through the timeline, it was around 7.45 when a man named Patrick Hall saw Zachary cross 6th Street through the alley, but he also recalled seeing Zachary crying and said that he witnessed a man following Zachary just a few feet back wearing a similar blue police jacket. And it was around this time, Gibbs, that police felt the man attacked Zachary. They weren't sure how the attack happened. Maybe he hit him. Maybe he used a stun gun. Yeah. There was no way for them to know. Around 8 a.m., Zachary's friends were outside the school to meet up and walk in together. But Zachary didn't show. We know that. The friends waited until 8.15 when the last school bell rang. And then we know that the school called Zachary's mother at 10. She called the police at 11.20. The other thing that police learned about this person of interest was that he lived 
about two blocks away from Zachary. So police knew that he would have been pretty knowledgeable sure. about that area, about Zachary's route from his apartment to his school. So police armed with this timeline and the witness accounts start looking into a man named Nathaniel Benjamin Levi Barjona. That is somewhat of a mouthful, Gibbs. It is. Barjona became the main suspect in this case. So let's take a look at him. Barjona's given name was David Paul Brown. He was born on February 15th, 1957. But at the young age of seven, he began to show signs of being a troubled individual. He really did, man. He was able to persuade a five-year-old neighbor girl to go into his basement with him to play a game. Once he got this girl alone, he tried to strangle her to death. But the girl was able to scream loud enough and fight him off until her mom came to her rescue. Thank goodness she could hear her. Gibbs, this is seven years old. Yeah. He tried to commit his first murder. Very early, man. When he turned 12, he persuaded a six-year-old boy to climb up a snow-covered hill with him with the idea that the two were going to sled down the hill together. Once they got to the top of the hill, he began to sexually assault this boy. And he had a number of other attempts, close calls, things that were stopped before his intended victim got hurt. Yeah. There are some people, Gibbs, that believe a boy by the name of James Teta, who was kidnapped in 1973 and then later found murdered in 1975, was the work of this Bar Jonah, David Paul Brown. Yeah. I know it's strange, right? It is strange. His birth name is David Paul Brown. He's later going to change it to Bar Jonah. But because we're going back in time, it's kind of difficult to know what to call him. Right. I think from here on out, we'll just call him Barjona. But the key here is you can see the pattern. Oh, my gosh. So early, ramping up, try to kill, sexual assault, most likely was the guy that killed James in 73, and the body just wasn't discovered until 75. In March of 1975, Barjona was a high school senior. He was pretending to be a police officer and kidnapped eight-year-old Richard O'Connor while this kid was walking to school. A neighbor saw him and called it into police, described the car that Barjona was driving. So police drove around the area looking for this car. They located it in a parking lot, parked way back all by itself. No other cars around it. They approached the parked car forced Barjona out of it inside. They found this young boy. He had been sexually assaulted. He was bloody. He was covered in his own urine and feces. It just tells you the amount of trauma that he went through. This kid was barely alive. He had been strangled. So the authorities rushed him to the hospital and the medical personnel was able to save his life. Yeah. But this kid was scarred. Oh, rest of his life, he'll have those nightmares. He was viciously attacked, almost murdered, and sexually assaulted. 
But here's the part that I think will infuriate people, right? Barjona was still a juvenile. So he got very minimal time and was actually released on probation so he could continue to go to high school. Yeah. After doing this. And knowing what his juvenile record was. If they knew. If they knew. That's the problem. That is. Sometimes those get sealed. We didn't have that information. But it was just 45 days later, Gibbs. This guy kidnapped a nine-year-old girl in Connecticut by impersonating a police officer. He beat her so badly that she vomited. She started having convulsions. So he drove around the corner and pushed her out of his moving car. Monster, man. This, this, is, a, this is an absolute monster. Yeah. Another driver saw this happen, got Barjona's plate number. He was arrested for the assault, but his probation officer was never alerted to this crime. And so his parole ended in May of 1976. Amazing. I mean, I'm blown away by this, yeah. that this could happen. This is back in the day when they didn't have all the computerized systems, the records that would alert them of things like this. Yeah, and it wasn't as easy for one agency to tap into something that had happened in another jurisdiction. I get all that. But it just, it pisses you off that someone can do what this guy has done from the age of 7 to 17, 18 years old and really walk away with, I wouldn't even call it a slap on the wrist. There's no accountability. No, none whatsoever. And it was just the next year, right? His parole had only been over for maybe a little bit over a year. On September 24th, 1977, Barjona kidnapped two kids by telling them that he was an FBI agent. He drove them to a wooded area. He handcuffed them, left one of the kids in his trunk while he tortured the other by burning him with cigarettes. Yeah, man, that's a terrible pain to do to somebody. And he jumped up and down on him. And the thing we haven't said yet is this guy was 400 pounds, 400 pounds jumping up and down on you repeatedly. On on a small boy. Boy. Yeah. So by 1977, he weighed 400 pounds. He assumed that he had killed this boy by jumping up and down on him. So he drove off, leaving him for dead. And I have no idea, Gibbs, how this boy didn't die, but he was able to get up. Thank goodness he found the strength. It really is kind of amazing to me that this kid was able to get up flagged down a car who called police. Police were able to locate Bar Jonah in his car, and they found the second boy still alive in the trunk. Now, ultimately, Bar Jonah received 20 years in a state mental medical facility for this criminal act. It was in March of 1984 that he legally changed his name from David Paul Brown to Nathaniel Benjamin Levi Barjona. Now, I know all of that is confusing, but it's important to the story. Then in mid-1991, a judge released Barjona to the public 
stating that he was no longer a threat to either the public or himself. So he spent Gibbs roughly, what, 14 years in a state mental facility. But what is unbelievable to me is the fact that a judge released this guy out into the public even after the guy admitted that he wanted to taste and eat flesh. Yeah. And he was having dreams about murdering people and expressed those dreams just a couple of months before he was released. Not nightmares. He used the term dreams. I, I think of dreams as something that it's a pleasant right, experience. Right, a, a good thing. A nightmare is something yeah. bad that you wake up all sweaty and you're confused. These should be flags that are popping up, popping up. Not time to let him go yet. He still needs some work. Well, they didn't pop up. And it's a bad thing that they didn't. Because on August 9th, 1991, this guy has not even been out, what, a few months? Right. He jumped into the backseat of a car where a boy was waiting for his mom to return to the car. And what he did was he took his full body weight, this massive body weight, and he just started slamming it into this small boy. Yeah, trying to crush him to death. Up against the side of the car, the mom and another woman came out. They started walking up to the car, and this is when Bar Jonah ran off. But a police officer saw him, chased him down, and arrested him. And he told the police flat out that he was trying to kill this boy. Yeah, just wanted to kill the boy with my body weight. Now, you would think, Given everything we've talked about regarding David Paul Brown slash Barjona, right. all of these things would have added up to something is seriously wrong with this individual. Yeah. We need to put him away and keep him there for a very long time. Lock him up, throw away the key. That's not going to happen. He got probation mm -hmm. for admitting that he tried to kill this boy and on top of that, was allowed to move. And that's when he took up residence in Great Falls, Montana, with his mom and brother. I'm in shock, man. Yeah. You and I have covered a lot of cases. I don't know if I've ever seen a series of acts committed by one person where they essentially went unpunished. Now, I get it. He spent 14 years in a sure. medical facility. Right. I understand that. But when you leave the medical facility and within just a few months, try to kill another person. Yeah. It tells you something. You should not be slapped with probation and allowed to move to another state where you're going to do something heinous there. And that's, that's even a bigger problem because, right, we're still in the age where there's not a lot of computerized systems sharing information. Sure. So- you just took somebody that's a really bad guy and dropped him off in Great Falls where nobody is going to know until he does something wrong what you have there. Gibbs, it's almost as if authorities back east said, you know what? We don't want to deal with this guy anymore. Yeah. Move out to Great Falls and let them deal with him. Maybe those cowboys will take care of it the, the old west that, way. That's just horrible. So we know that was a lot of information on... Bar Jonah, but I think it's extremely important to detail out what type of monster this guy was. Yeah, yeah. 
Because we're not just talking about some random guy, first time doing something bad. No, and the one thing that we didn't point out as we were going through some of the heinous things he did is how many times he impersonated a police officer to commit his crimes. Well, we know going back to the timeline put together in Zachary's case that witnesses saw a man wearing a police-like jacket following Zachary. And we know that many of his victims were young kids. Yeah, there's no doubt about that. So as we get back to Zachary's case, police have witnesses placing a man that appears to be Barjona in the alley earlier that morning. They have this other witness who saw the off-white car that matches Barjona's mom's car, which was a 1978 Toyota Corolla. They have the final witness who saw this man following Zachary in the alley just a few feet behind him. There's a lot of things kind of coming together to point at this guy, Barjona. It's why we spent so much time talking about him. The police were able to confirm that Barjona did not show up to work on the day of Zachary's disappearance. He also didn't show up for several days after. That's kind of telling, I think, you know, it's telling of something. Yeah. Something happened, you know, depending on what his work record was like normally, if all of a sudden you miss a number of days without a real explanation. Yeah. There's something to that. Why is that? Is that because he had Zachary at his place? Who knows? It could be a number of things. Police also found out that Barjona's mom and brother, who he was living with at the time, were out of town during the time frame when Zachary was taken or when he went missing. Police searched the home. And during the search, they found a handwritten list of names. And one of the names on this list was Zachary's. It was spelled incorrectly, yeah. but next to it was the word died in capital letters. Compelling. Uh, yeah. The rest of this list had a number of other victims' names on it, and next to their names had different outcomes. And I'm not too shocked by this, right? We know that serial killers... They like to keep track. They like to know what they've done. Yeah, I think in a way you could look at it as a souvenir, right? It's not something from the person, but it is something that you're able to look back on and relive your crimes, probably. Yeah. You're keeping track of your victims, what happened to them. Barjona's family had a border that lived in their home as well. And this guy told police that he saw some items that were very similar, if not exactly like the clothing that Zachary was known to have been wearing that day in Barjona's room. He also said that Barjona kept newspapers of Zachary's case, and he remembered seeing some bloody gloves in the house at one point. That's some... Pretty good information for the police. It's not looking good for this guy. No. I mean, it's not hard evidence. 
It's not going to tie him directly to anything. Right. It's not the smoking gun. It's it's not a murder weapon with his fingerprints on it. It's not that. But, man, you know, we talk a lot about circumstantial evidence. Right. This is a lot of really good circumstantial evidence. It really is. Police also found a notebook with some strange writing in it that they sent to the FBI to analyze. Gibbs, it was determined to be a recipe for a stew that called for the flesh of children. Yeah. Sickening. Yeah. Remember, he he had a taste and wanted to- He said he did. Know what it would taste like to eat children. The notebook also contained writing about torture, killing, and the eating of kids. So Gibbs, I I think police were more than a little suspicious, I'll say, (laughs) of this individual. Sure. I think at a certain point, they became certain that Barjona abducted Zachary and killed him. But then they got some information from some friends and neighbors that around the time of Zachary's disappearance, Barjona had made a stew that he fed to them, these friends and neighbors. He also fed them some meat casseroles and burgers. Yeah. And based on that, police started to wonder if he had gone as far as chopping this boy up and putting pieces of his body into these meals. Yeah. It was a few neighbors that had the uh, stew. And the casserole and the burgers. Yeah. So, number one, you'd be horrified. Oh. To find out that it was even possible, that it was even a possibility that you ate human flesh or meat. It's giving flashbacks about Robert Pickton. Yes. It it would be horrifying. But then this news got out into the media and kids started learning about this possibility. They were so upset. Devastated. That the school had to bring in counselors to talk to these kids, to help them deal with the possible way that Zachary died and these strange stories of cannibalism. Back in that time, there was actually a whole front page of a newspaper dedicated to how to discuss this case with your child when he comes home from school. Yeah, because as a parent, this is not something that you really plan for. Mm -mm. This is not a conversation that you have waiting in the wings How do I talk to my child when they find out that one of their classmates has been killed and was most likely eaten? Yeah, there's no Dr. Seuss book for that. No, there's no manual. It's just not something you're prepared for, and you shouldn't have to be. No, never. Police finally arrested Barjona, and they were set to take him to trial, but they had a problem. A big one. Yeah, it was a big one. Zachary's mother came out and made the statement that her son was not dead. He was still alive. And so there was no way that this man could have killed him or eaten him. I mean, I get it. You want that to be the case. You're holding on for sure for hope. And the last thing you want is to think that something so disgusting and terrible, terrible happened to your kid to think that somebody actually ate 
his flesh. You don't want to know that. No, you would never want to believe that. I understand that as a parent. The problem is this essentially blew the case for the prosecution. Rachel had no proof that Zachary was alive. She had the hope as any parent would. Right. But Bar Jonah's defense attorney used this to his advantage. There was no body. And now the victim's own mother is saying he's still alive. So the prosecution had to back off. They had to drop the charges. Bar Jonah was arrested in 1999 for impersonating a great false police officer and kidnapping and sexually assaulting three boys. So thank goodness. He was back on the street. You know, doing his thing. This time they found pictures of some other boys and they unearthed 21 human bone fragments in Bar Jonah's garage dirt floor, some of which they believe were the remains of Zachary Ramsey. The problem with the bones is that they appeared to have been smashed and boiled, damaging any chance of extracting DNA. Yeah, I think it's pretty much impossible. The test that they did perform could only say that the bones belonged to an adolescent. Barjona was eventually convicted for the kidnapping, sexual assault, and torture of these three boys. During his trial, several other children came forward stating that he had kidnapped and assaulted them too. Yeah. They saw his uh, picture in the news in the papers and recognized him and then came forward, which was good. It is good. It's horrible. Yes. That they went through what they did, but it's good that they were able to come forward to add even more evidence against this guy, because let's face it, Gibbs, the man had a history of getting out from underneath what was a series of horrible things that started at age seven, seven, but not this time he was convicted and the judge sentenced him to 130 years in state prison. Bar Jonah died of a blood clot in the Montana state prison in 2008. Zachary Ramsey is still listed on the national missing and abducted children's website. Zachary's dad believes that he is dead. And he believes that it's most likely that Bar Jonah killed him. Sure. Zachary's father wants the courts to declare him dead for his own peace of mind. That's a tough one. Yeah. That's a tough one. And and you can go back and forth. And I think different people will have different opinions on it. Some people would say, no, I, I don't ever want him to be declared dead because right. I want the hope. The hope is always there that he's going to turn up. Yeah, you know, I didn't see much about his mom after the fact, but I, I would imagine she still feels that he's probably alive and hopes that one day maybe she'll see him. The sad part about this case is obviously technically it's still unsolved. Right. But it's hard not to believe that this guy, Bar Jonah, had something to do with whatever happened to Zachary Ramsey. Yeah. It's really hard to believe. There's so much evidence albeit circumstantial that is pointing in his direction i mean it fits his mo and and that's what i was going to say and then you factor in all of his past deeds 
some of them involving impersonating a police officer, many of them actually. Right. And the thought that there was a man right behind Zachary that day wearing what appeared to be some type of police officer's jacket. The problem is with Bar Jonah dead, I doubt there will ever be resolution in this case. And I did read an article about Bar Jonah that once he was sentenced, once he went to prison, he denied having anything to do with any of the cases. Yeah. Right. He never took responsibility. Which I hate. Right. You know, I get it. There's really no reason for him to do that, but you would like to think, okay, you're never getting out, dude. Right. Can you at least do one decent thing in your whole miserable life and give some of these families the answers that they've been seeking? Yeah. Let them and, know. And may never have. They may, Some of these people will die never knowing what happened to their children. And it's possible, very possible, that right. this man could have cleared some of that up for them. And he was such a piece of shit yeah. that he wouldn't even do that. No. But it amazes me. Here, here we start off with the terrible disappearance. And then we learn about the bad things that happened to Delana guy that did what he did to her and got away almost 20 years before he got caught. Then we roll into this monster. It just amazes me. Here we are in this town, Great Falls, 60,000 people. And you have just this monsters everywhere. It seems like, yeah. And, and I know that's not the case, but man, I'm telling you what you and I have done a lot of true crime all the times. We could have done one on this bar Jonah guy. He was despicable. Just a horrible human being. Yeah. Terrible, man. But that's it. That's the case of Zachary Ramsey. Gibbs, we have some voicemails. You want to check those out? Yeah, let's hear them. Hello, Mike and Gibby. My name is Fantasia. Um, it's definitely been a while since I've called in. I kind of go through phases with podcasts where I listen to some and then I come back and I catch up again. But I'm just going to say I'm all caught up now. Um, but I did want to say that um, the Susan Lyle case um, really, really hit home with me. Um, I'm about the same age as her. I work two jobs and I'm going to college. Um, and I did want to say so. I actually just recently got hired at an escape room, which if you guys have not been to one, I think it'd be so funny, you know, to like, hear your guys' experience and something like that. Um, if you were ever down to make the trip to Galesburg, Illinois, and come see me at my escape room, the downtown escape, <laughs> I'd love to have you guys. Anyway, um, but yeah, so that case really hit me hard, um, you know, and I just wanted to let you know that you you guys are really keeping us safe. Um, for I'm speaking for the younger generation kind of going to college, your daughter's age kids. Um, but yeah, thank you guys for all of you do, and uh, keep your own time ticking. Wow, that was a great voicemail. And we appreciate it. Uh, Fantasia hasn't called in in a while. It's been a while. Sounds like we need to make a road trip to uh, the escape room. We need to do it. I've never been to one of those places. Yeah. I do feel like every time I'm in the studio with you, it's like an escape room. (laughs) It probably is. Because I'm weighing my options and figuring out if you lose it, how am I going to get out of here? We should do an escape room in this area with two listeners. Okay. Have them come up. Or do the escape room, and where they do the escape room around here, mm-hmm. in the next uh, place next door, you do the throwing of the axe axes. Mm-hmm. We can do that. Okay, you can so I'll throw them, you retrieve them. So you're going to do an escape room. Yeah, is that similar to an escape room, or is it different? I don't. Uh, the the escape room. <laughs> hey, you know what I'm talking about. 
You know what I said, damn it. All right. <laughs> but I pre- we appreciate the kind words, Fantasia. We really do. Hi, this is Linda from Brisbane, Australia. I wanted to say I love the podcast. Mike, Gibby, you do such an awesome job. I own boarding kennels, so I look after everyone else's their babies when they go on holidays. I also breed German shepherds. I call them my crazy Germans. So I spend a lot of time out in the yard doing physical manual work. Where I used to listen to the radio all day, which is about a 14, 15 hour working day on average, up to 18 hours. Now I listen to true crime all the time. I get lost in your podcast. I'm definitely binging as I listen for at least six, eight hours a day while working. And the doggies also now have to listen to true crime all the time as I play it on the stereo and all our exercise yards have speakers. I used to judge clients that dogs could sing the words to the top 40. Now, not sure how I'd explain them listening to true crime all the time. Love how you guys interact, but also how you try and ensure that you are respectful when telling some of your horrific stories. Gibby's math calculations, if only they were true, he could turn my 100 bucks into millions, so I may have to send him some funds to invest in Gibby stuff. Keep doing what you guys are doing as you're doing a fantastic job. I have told everyone I know about this podcast and several of my staff are now also hooked. So keep your own time ticking and know that you guys have a huge following down here in Australia. Have fun. Bye. All right. Love it. Gibbs, we've heard from a lot of people that I think their pets or... In her case, you know, the, the animals that she's working with listen to true crime all the time. Now, maybe not by choice. They're not actually pushing the button to start the episode. Right. But they're digging it. They are. And I think it helps keep some of the dogs and cats, um, their heads on a swivel. They're more aware of their surroundings. Yeah. That's some of the things that, that I'm hearing from owners. We love our listeners' pets. We do. Yeah. You and I love animals. Yeah. So. And she's from Australia. Was she? I, I, I didn't know that. <laughs> I, where, where are you basing that on? Yeah. The fact that she, she said, said she was from Australia yeah. well, or the Australian accent? What I wanted to say is, you know, our hearts go out to them. You know, we know, they do. We yeah. know that they, man, they've had a rough uh, almost two months now with yeah. those brush fires. and Not brush, but bush fires. And thank Fully, it started raining there the other day, and hopefully that helps them out. And man, yeah, we just, I'm glad you said that because it's something we haven't talked about, yeah. and I'm glad you put it out there. Definitely thinking about all of you. Hi, guys. This is Sarah from Brooklyn, New York. I'm calling um, after listening to the Suzanne Lyle episode. Um, you knew this was coming to correct some of your pronunciation. Um, it is Oneonta, not, oh, I think you said Onaonta. And it's Rensselaer, not Rensselaer. Um, but also, I graduated from University at Albany a year before Suzanne went missing. Um, and I just had a little thought about um, finding her ID in the parking lot. So, and it being in the opposite direction from her dorm. That parking lot is, or at least at the time, was a visitor's parking lot. So anyone could have been parking in there. Um, And it's also uh, pretty um, covered in trees, which most of the campus is not. That's a pretty, um, uh, not wooded area, but has a lot more trees and is a lot more dark than the rest of the campus. It also, I think, is in the direction of the computer center, um, so if she was not going straight back to her dorm, she may have been going to the computer center. Um, in the late 90s, most people did not have their own personal computers in their dorms, and so they would go into the computer center where they could just sit down and use one of those. So not sure if that's helpful or not, but just wanted to call in. Big fan. I'm uh, Team Mike. Uh, thanks for everything, and keep your own time ticking. Yeah, I mean, that's interesting. But I mean, we do know she had her own laptop, so I don't know if she would be going to the computer center 
um, if she had her own laptop. But uh, I think it's all interesting. Yeah. Anytime somebody has that experience, we love when they call in and oh, can absolutely. you know shed some light on stuff that there's no way that we could yeah. possibly know. The one thing I'll say is I'm really surprised. I, I swear I pronounced it Oneonta because I am familiar with oh, that no. name and I'm surprised I would have messed that one up. But you know me. It's, right. it's not out of the question. It could happen. The other one, I'm sure I messed up. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> no, I appreciate that she called in. Hey, Michael and Gibby. This is Hannah Salmon all the way from Canada, Alberta, and I'm driving to Edmonton right now with my basketball team, and we've just been listening to your podcast, and we really enjoy them and hope to hear this on one of your upcoming podcasts. Happy 2020. Love you guys. Keep being great. Some hoopsters. Yeah. A whole busload of yeah. hoopsters is listening to True Crime. Well, you're hearing it right now. Yeah. Hopefully you're on a trip right now listening to our voices and you're getting psyched for that game. And I'll tell you a little tip. Don't let the paint dry. You're going Hoosiers on me? I am. Okay. On them. I was going to say, make sure you use your legs because the shot comes all from the legs. Yeah. I was just, don't let the paint dry on the fence. <laughs> don't wa- Don't get caught watching that paint dry. Whatever You're very much like that character <laughs> that Dennis Hopper plays in Hoosiers. All right, everyone, we, we got to get out. So that's it for another episode of True Crime All Time Unsolved. So for Mike and Gibby, stay safe and keep your own time ticking. and humans coexist in harmony, where wild animals thrive, habitats are protected, and marginalized communities are empowered. At International Animal Rescue, this is our vision. Our holistic, community-led projects not only rescue animals, but also protect and replenish precious habitats, creating a better future for us all. But we can't do this without you. Show your support now and help keep the wild, wild. Visit internationalanimalrescue.org. This is your invitation to the intersection of versatility and design. The kind of experience you can only find in a Lexus SUV. A feeling this empowering is invite only. Fortunately, you're invited. Experience the versatility of the complete line of Lexus SUVs and some of the best offers of the year on select models at the Invitation to Lexus sales event, now through April 1st. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer.